Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. If you're a fan of the show, write us a review and tell your friends about us. And if you donate at thebittersweetlife.net, you'll not only help keep the show going, you'll get a handwritten thank you note in the mail. And we will never forget you. Also, if you want to sponsor the show, contact us through thebittersweetlife.net. And if you're new, welcome. I'm Katie Sewell. This show begins in Rome, right after I quit my job as a senior producer for public radio and moved there. This was totally out of my character. My co-host is Tiffany Parks. She's a writer, author of Midnight in the Piazza, and she's my childhood friend. And she also moved to Rome, but over a decade ago. She flew there with no real plan and managed to stay. Don't be afraid to start way back at the beginning. I promise you'll be entertained. And don't be afraid to start thinking about how you might want your life to be different. We're all on this journey together. Welcome to Rome. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. Tiffany is away this week, but I'm joined by Anthony Dorr. He is the Pulitzer Prize winning author of All the Light We Cannot See, which also won the Andrew Carnegie Medal for Excellence in Fiction. He's the author of two short story collections, The Shell Collector and Memory Wall another novel called About Grace, and a memoir titled Four Seasons in Rome. Most recently, he has served as the guest editor for the 2019 Best American Short Stories, which will be released in October. Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm excited to learn about the podcast. Yeah, you can become a regular listener from here on. Yeah, totally. So I'm thinking that this is going to be a pretty wide-ranging discussion because... I've wanted you to join us on the show for, I don't know, at least three years to talk about your book about Rome. Tiffany and many of the other listeners, when they heard that you were coming on, wanted a behind-the-scenes look at your bestseller, All the Light We Cannot See. And then, of course, top of mind is the short story collection that you're the editor for. So I thought we would actually start there talking about short stories. And then we'll move on to France and Rome or wherever we go from there. Sounds great. So you wrote an introduction in the short story collection that was about what you were writing like when you were a youth before you learned anything about official writing. What kind of a writer were you when you were starting out? Oh, gosh. Well, you get nostalgic for those days now that you're old and have a mortgage and children and have to think about things. Because when I look back, I'm sure it wasn't all fun, but it it just seems so fun and playful to me. I was the youngest of three boys, and we grew up kind of in a – my mom was a science teacher, so we had plenty of science books, Aldo Leopold and Annie Dillard on the shelves, but we also had lots and lots of novels. And my mom was, you know, very enlightened in a lot of ways. Like, we could go to the library and choose whatever we wanted. She didn't supervise. She didn't critique, you know, if there was sex in the book. We didn't know. We we weren't even old enough to get it anyway. So I'd come home with like Paul Bowles, you know, they're smoking hashish in Morocco or something. I don't know what's happening in the book, but I was allowed to read that stuff. And uh, at a really early age, I was just intoxicated with the idea that these little marks on a page could tell stories and make universes and that it felt so real you know, particularly the Chronicles of Narnia. I remember mom reading us those books and 
the whole idea of walking in through a wardrobe into this alternate world. That's really what a book became for me. That's what fiction was. So I wanted to imitate that from a really early age and hammered out little stories on my mom's typewriter and hand wrote stories into notebooks. But that said, I didn't give myself permission to suggest to myself I wanted to be a writer. It seemed like really a uh, pretentious kind of thing to say, you know, I didn't know any writers. There were, it's not like my parents had novelists over for dinner. I just figured they were all dead or lived in Buenos Aires. Or something. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's sort of actually how I have always thought about musicians, that they're just sort of mythical creatures that exist out there somewhere that create amazing things. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you think books are like they grow on trees and, you know, they just become. And it takes a little while to grow up to realize, oh, people made those and you can try to make them too. Yeah. But in that growing up experience of learning that people actually created these, you also, just thinking about English class in high school, for example, you also start to learn how to pick a book apart or what the different constructions are or the rules or the patterns the people are following or, you know, that sort of thing. And what do you make of that extra layer of critique and rules that happen over time. Yeah, sometimes I think that can get a little defeating. You're teachers that suggest like, now let's break apart the seven themes that the author has incorporated into this novel. You're like, really? I have to incorporate themes? I didn't know anything about that. I just love the intoxicating magic of making up people and and then dialogue in particular like i can have my little pirates talk in this story and they can speak differently than i can that was so exciting so as it started to get a little more rigid what i write about in the introduction to best american this year is i just write about this uh i think it was junior year in high school we had a short story contest and i finally got up my gumption to submit a story but then the kind of fun story i was working on seemed too silly so i worked on this really serious heavy story with all kinds of symbolism <laughs> i called it cesura even though i didn't really know what that meant but it seemed like a really important literary term <laughs> yeah and of course that story didn't win and it just set my you know my anxiety back and another decade because I just thought, of course, I'll never be accepted. And you have to realize like so much of art is play and you have to give yourself permission to play. And you're still maybe reaching after huge questions. What does it mean to be alive? But it doesn't mean that it has to be work and pain all the time. And it took me a long time to remember that lesson that I already knew when I was a kid. What percentage would you say of your daily writing life is joy versus pain? Yeah, still the pain outweighs the joy. You know, there's moments when you, you're dreaming these characters and you're filling the scene and it's so fun. But often you sleep, you go back, you reread it. And you're like, this is clunky. This isn't working. How am I going to mesh these two characters together? This book I'm working on now, I've got five separate characters moving through time in different places in time, and trying to get them all to work in concert can be excruciating, to be honest. So I'll find all kinds of ways to avoid working, you know, walk to get coffee, now I'll walk the dog, now I'll go exercise. But then once you're about 10 or 15 minutes in, usually it can kind of transmute back to a quiet kind of joy, you know, it's like meditation or prayer or drawing, once you make a practice for yourself, once you're in it and you get past the kind of broken, you break the ice, and get back into it, I think you can really find a peace if you keep doing it day after day. Well, and since you did both memoir and novels, is it a totally different thought process in when you're writing about yourself and then inventing characters or is it similar? Yeah, good question. Uh, yes and no. You, I could write... 100 pages saying how it's similar and 100 pages saying how different it is. When you're inventing story, 
the structure, the dramatic structure is easier to create. Life itself is messy. And to make a memoir is already an artificial act because you're trying to build this disordered thing that is life into a structure. You're trying to fit it into some kind of narrative structure. So often with fiction, I'm already thinking in those terms, even though you have to go through this uh, much more intense effort to invent the details of a day or the details of a person, it's a little bit easier to figure out, you know, where's my rising action? You know, how could I resolve this thing? In life, you really have to put parameters, artificial parameters around something. So in the case of that book I wrote, Four Seasons in Rome, you know, I just built it around a calendar year, you know, and built it around the seasons and our time there just to give it a little bit of structure. Otherwise, you feel like life, you, mean you, could, fill, you could fill a thousand pages just about a, a trip to the park. You know, Nicholson Baker wrote this novel called The Mezzanine, and the whole thing is just a trip up an escalator. You know, you can... Still, you can fill anything with words. So it's really about finding that structure in life, structuring the disordered thing that is life. Well, that's interesting, too. While you were talking about that, I was also thinking with that All the Light We Cannot See book, in that book, you have to also be able to operate within a different time period. So it's not just figuring out the story, but... I can remember taking historical fiction writing when I was a writing major in college. And for some reason, I decided to set it in Italy with the painter Modigliani, knowing nothing about Italy, knowing nothing about painting. And all I had to do to pass that class was write a convincing chapter. And I was paralyzed to get him even out of the house. He opens the door. Oh my gosh, what's going on outside? Is there light of any kind? All of these things are missing. What's been your experience with that? Absolutely. I can totally relate, Katie. The historical stuff is where I'm really drawn right now, but it's so much work. And a lot of my fiction before All the Light, if I had a character walk into her bedroom, I could kind of imagine what that bedroom looked like pretty readily. And when, even though it wasn't that long ago, if you have a character walk into her bedroom in 1935, three sentences in, you're diving into research. And that can quickly become a whirlpool of procrastination. It's all so interesting. And you're riding these fractals onto like, ooh, now I'm looking at pictures of pharmacies from 1935. And ooh, I wonder what kind of drugs they were selling. And the next thing you know, it's lunch. And you're like, okay, I wrote three sentences and they're not very good. And now I should go to lunch. Uh, so, you know, the past is always unknowable. I don't think that means you shouldn't try your very best to render everything as convincingly and as carefully as you can, but ultimately it's still a work of the imagination. You might say, this is a historical novel and I did my very best, but still, these aren't the lives of people that lived then. It's still a a work of the imagination. And that's the suspension of disbelief that you're asking your reader to take. How long did it take you to write that novel? That novel took 10 years. 10 years, yeah. While I was in Rome, I started it. While I was in Rome and the boys were babies, our twin boys, and it became so difficult in various places. I wrote really two books as procrastination from all the light, just because, you know, you're also reading about the destruction of millions of human beings. And so sometimes I would just need to take a break psychically from the material, but other places I felt like just the structure of it, you know, I really kind of tried to build it like a labyrinth in the novel. This girl uh, is given kind of like little puzzles, little models, maquettes of a city, and she has to kind of find her way through them. And I tried to build the structure of the novel like that. And that was a big hurdle for me, structuring that novel. 
I think in the end it has 230 some chapters. I have to double check that. But the earliest versions had many, many more chapters and I'd lay them out on the floor and push them around the carpet. So sometimes it would just be months working on the structure of the book. Wow, amazing. I guess we should probably pause and can you give a brief description of that book for people who haven't read it yet, just so they're not lost with what we're talking about? Yeah, sure. That was my fifth book. It's called All the Light We Cannot See and is a novel set in the run-up to the Second World War and during the Second World War and it follows the paths of two kids, a French girl who is visually impaired and a German boy who is a gifted radio engineer and kind of falls in love with the magic of radio, a precursor to podcasts <laughs> and just the magic of hearing the voice of a stranger that you can't see, uh, you know, for the history of humanity, that wasn't possible until the rise of radio in the early 20th century. So I really wanted to tell a story that asked big questions about technology, the role of technology and power, you know, the Germans, particularly Goebbels, maybe the second worst human ever born after Hitler, were brilliant at figuring out and recognizing the power of radio. They really decreased the price of radio subscriptions, and they built these really inexpensive receivers and got them into kitchens all around Germany. And they had decreased sensitivity, so it was really hard to get foreign stations. And they're really able to deprive millions of German citizens of the ability to think independently. And hmm. we're in a time when technology is changing really quickly. How it's used as a tool of oppression and as a tool of liberation is very, very interesting right now. So I hope the novel asks the reader to think about some of that stuff in the background. Was that book sparked by being abroad, by traveling? You said you started it in Rome, but was it traveling in Rome? Was it traveling in France? Does it come from that movement? Yeah, great question. Yeah, I think in many ways, almost all of my work uh, has been sparked in some way by leaving the familiar and going to a place where I'm slightly more uncomfortable. Sometimes you can just do that through reading, and other times you do it through moving your physical body out of your comfort zone. And in that case, I was working on a book. I knew I wanted to write a book about radio. I was about a year into this. I just had this girl re reading a story to uh, a boy over a radio. That's all I really had. And then I was in France in the I was in Brittany. I was so ignorant about that area that I thought Brittany was in Britain until I got there. I was at the end of a book tour. It was dark. We were in this town called Saint-Malo, and I'd never been there before. And there was this long dinner, these French journalists, you know, asking all these questions and smoking like crazy, and I don't smoke. And eventually, I kind of sneaked out a back door and walked up a couple flights of stairs and found myself atop the ramparts surrounding this old, old city in San Malo, the tides are really, really big there. So the, it was a big low tide and the moon was out and there's like, a, you know, a half mile of wet sand glowing in the moonlight. And you feel like you've stumbled into like an Italo Calvino fable or a, like an MC Escher etching, something like that. Mm. And the next day I walked around with my editor and I kept saying all these foolish American things, you know, look how old everything is. <laughs> and He's like, actually, the town was almost entirely destroyed at the end of the Second World War, primarily by American bombs. The first time napalm was used in warfare was in San Malo, 1944. So then I started reading more and more about the city and started to think this place, which kind of mixed fairy tale and devastating reality. And that was kind of what I tried to do in the novel as well. 
So I sort of think maybe that was my setting. So yeah, travel helped. It's interesting because it, it harkens back to the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe to me. It has that magical walking through the wardrobe quality. Absolutely. I, I think I'm trying for that in all my work. I'm always trying to play on some kind of intertextuality, a book within a book, scale, small things within big things. Because for me, a book is this little universe you get to hold in your hand. And something so magical and powerful about that. You know, books are portals into a different mind. They take you out of yourself. And I think, I like to believe that they help increase your empathy muscles. And I'm also, I'm always trying to play with a book inside of a book. Really, I think for about 15 years on all my fiction, I've always got some character reading something inside of the thing I'm making, you know. I love your attraction to radio because, you know, I've come from a radio background. So I'm in love with just the look of the word radio. <laughs> like, that's how deep it goes. Yeah, that's great. I make a podcast, but I like to think of it like radio. Yeah, but it, a podcast very much is radio. I think it's just a, it's like a DVR for radio, you know, but it's still a really nice way to carry the voice of someone else. I love that you can go for a run or a walk with a podcast on. You can still do something like the dishes with a podcast on it. I mean, I just think it's a fascinating, really plastic form, and it's so exciting to see what people like you guys are doing with it. Thanks. So Tiffany, who couldn't be with us today, since she just finished reading the book, she really wanted to know that since one of your characters is blind, one of the central characters is blind, is there anything that you personally did to try to make her more realistic. She pictures you walking around outside blindfolded, I think. Yeah, I tried all kinds of different stuff. My office that I was in before this one was about six blocks, I think five five or six blocks from the Idaho Center for the Blind. So people were around me training all the time, dogs or canes. And I read as many memoirs as I could by people who had lost their vision. I did have my sons lead me around, although I worry that that's somehow dismissive of what a real disability is like. And so I definitely don't want to make light of it. And I even tried to include a line in there, like for those of you who close your eyes and think you can guess what this is like, it's, there's something unplumbable about it. And there, it's also dangerous for an able-bodied person to write about a character with a disability. So I had all kinds of anxieties tied up in that. But ultimately, I felt like I just had to do my best to imagine what this one girl, this really, really curious, intellectually powerful girl would be like. And, and, you know, Braille books were so expensive. What would it be like for her father to only be really be able to afford one book a year for her when I'm living this life of this huge surfeit of books where I get sent books every day that I never have time to read all the stuff? And What if you only had one book a year? You know, what would that life be like? So... It's an imaginative and a work of research, but I'm ultimately trying to maybe cross a gulf I can't cross to and trying to do it carefully, but you can never always do everything as well as you wish you wish you had you know ultimately you're still taking a leap into the unknown and the other i did an interview with one of our people in our legislature is a a blind man but he used to be a lawyer and back when he was a lawyer and more accessible i did an interview with him in seattle and one of the kind of stupid questions I asked him was, do you try to picture in your head what I look like when we're talking? And he said, of course not. I'll never know. So why would I bother? And I said, so what are you paying attention to? And he said, well, I, I'm paying attention to how tall are you? If I take your arm, what sort of a presence do you have? If I'm picturing anything at all, I lost my sight when I was a kid 
in the 80s, so I might picture everyone around me like Cindy Lauper, <laughs> because that's the last <laughs> reference of what I saw. But otherwise, no, it's an extraneous detail. And I think as a sighted person, I just never would have thought that. I would think if I was just hearing your voice on the radio, I would try to, I guess it comes from radio too, that a picture forms in your mind of what that person looks like, whether or not it's anything realistic or not. I think of you as well known for having beautiful descriptive writing, especially when you're setting a scene, noticing details and including them in that scene. And it made me wonder if, is it the writing and the language that comes up to match what you're imagining or seeing in real life? Or do you notice details more in life because you're a writer? It's like a chicken and the egg question. Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> There's probably no real answer to it, or I, I won't be totally conscious of it. Starting around when I was 16, I started to keep a daily diary, a journal, e even though some days I don't get to it, but almost every day I try to. And certainly when I'm traveling or I'm in some place that's strange to me, I write more in the journal because the familiar tends to kind of wipe things away and make them less visible to you. Uh, I think that has been my one kind of secret weapon. Uh, that's a way to, especially now that smartphones exist, to have your phone far away, to slow down, and to become kind of one big eye. You know, it works best if I'm if I've eaten and I'm not worried about myself or some illness I have, and I can just focus on the world outside of me and just describe things. What I see. It's also a really safe place to write because you don't have to publish it. You don't have to share it. My handwriting is so tiny that nobody will probably ever read this ever. <laughs> and so that's very liberating in a way. It's, it's like what we talked about earlier. It's a way to kind of chase the innocent childlike nature of just making things with describing the world or circumscribing the world with sentences. Uh, and so I, I, I'm not sure if the language comes later. Often the language that I'm publishing is much more refined than the stuff I'm putting in the book, but uh, in the journal. But I think it's a way to just slow down every day and keep practicing, translating that big, shivering, clattering, unknowable thing that is the world into language. And that's always an approximation. You know, words mean one thing to me and another thing to you. And, you know, you can never quite capture all the magic that is, say, a tree through language. Uh, and that's kind of beautiful. It's a collaboration between reader and writer every time. Is the natural world important to you as an artist, do you think? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I'm the kind of person who's like walking through the park and I'm like, oh, there's a blue jay talking to another blue jay. My wife's like, there's a couple having a huge fight right there and you're missing the whole thing. I'm always more interested in maybe or as interested in what's happening with the plants and animals around me as the people around me. Even though maybe you and I are the generation where we were taught about the animal kingdom, which like <laughs> applies, there's some male thing in there too, but it also applies that like humans are at the top of the animal kingdom. And I love now that we're learning through genetics primarily that we're just another species and we're linked in a million different ways to all these other species. And in many ways, it's horseshoe crabs or it's bacteria that are the survivors. And we're you know, more than likely just another blip in the history of species. Yeah, that reminded me of a, a different question, actually, which might be an unanswerable one. I don't know. But could you think of the smallest thing that you were ever inspired by? Huh. Sure. I mean, I can even think of like, you know, microscopic things we... You know, I remember looking at paramecium and bacteria and the microscope and 
you know, my mom being a science teacher, that stuff didn't seem nerdy or strange to us. That was just part of our upbringing, you know, grab something from the pond and bring it up and put it in mom's microscope and watch these little battles that are happening. Annie Dillard has a beautiful little piece about her first time looking through a microscope. I think, I think, you know, those things can be, it's kind of maybe what we were talking about earlier, like, you can look at the universe on a warm summer night and that can be totally inspiring. And yet you can also just look at one drop of human blood and that can be totally inspiring. I love reading about genetics, the mysteries inside the human cell, inside all of life, this whole original first spark that arrived on earth. We still don't have any idea how that happened. How does form arise up out of the formlessness of the first billion years of the earth? It's fascinating. This is another long conversation that we're splitting into two episodes. Part two, we travel to Rome and learn what it is like to be a Rome Prize scholar and to accept an opportunity to move abroad, even though your wife just gave birth to twin boys. That's part two of our story episode featuring Anthony Doerr, Pulitzer Prize winning author of All the Light We Cannot See, and the guest editor of the 2019 Best American Short Stories, which is coming out in October. Part two is available right now if you want to plunge ahead. And in the meantime, please consider supporting the show on Patreon. That's at patreon.com slash thebittersweetlife. Talk to you soon. Bye. Thanks for all the ways you support us. Give us a good rating on iTunes, maybe five stars if you like the show. It will help other people discover that we exist. Thank you. You're the best.